Well, it was the night before his crucifixion. Christ had to return to the city of Jerusalem to partake in the Passover meal. The upper room had been secured. The preparations had been made. For this, the most important Jewish feast or festival of the entire year. It was Passover. See, Passover in the mind of a Jew was akin to New Year's Day and July 4th, Independence Day, rolled into one. It was the day in which the Jews remembered God's miraculous act of deliverance when he delivered them from slavery and the bondage of Pharaoh and of Egypt. It was also a time, a celebration marked by hope and excitement that the Passover would once again be fulfilled by God's dramatic intervention. Picking up on the story from Luke 22, verse 7, we read, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Moving on to verse 14. And when the hour came, that is the hour of the Passover meal, he, that's being Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. Undoubtedly, it would have been expected that Jesus, adopting the role as head of the family, would now take the lead in introducing the elements of the Passover meal, of the bread and of the wine. And we read in verse 15, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then we receive the following words. Then Jesus proceeds to depart from the very well-known liturgy, the sequence of prayers and sayings. And he makes the most stunning, remarkable statement to his disciples. He took the bread, the very unleavened bread that generations had been eating in memory of the Passover. And he says the following words. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup, the cup of wine that they had been drinking for generations as Jews faithfully every Passover and saying, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant of my blood. In one single act, Christ is saying, the entire Passover festival and festivities and meals have been fulfilled in me. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am the Passover lamb whose blood was shed or will be shed for you. The greatest act of salvation history in the Old Testament the Passover, the story of Exodus, was but a, but a prophetic event, a gospel event pointing to this time. He's saying to his disciples, remember me. Remember who I am. Remember what I've said. Remember what I'm about to do. Remember the Passover lamb because you are looking at him in me. Friends, the Passover lamb 
is none other than Jesus Christ, who we worship today. We are called to remember Christ, the Passover lamb. As we begin the new series this morning on the atonement, on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross, we're going to take a look at the importance of remembering, the importance of recounting, the importance of rehearsing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to remember this morning. For some of you, this may be the first time you've really heard the gospel. In a group this size, there may be some of you out there this morning. For some of us, you may have always assumed that you knew what or who the gospel is. This morning, we're going to go deeper in remembering the gospel as seen in the gospel event of the Passover, announced in Exodus, fulfilled in Christ. Let us pray. Father, I ask this morning you would sharpen our minds to hear and prompt our hearts to respond to the glorious truths that we are about to explore. Lord, I ask that you would challenge us this morning. I realize some of us here we may say, I've heard this before. I know the gospel. Although may we not assume the gospel this morning because we've heard it, we know it, because we know it, that we have lived it. Lord, don't let us tune out this morning or excuse ourselves from what we're about to hear because it is a familiar story or a familiar topic. But Lord, rivet our attention upon the gospel this morning. Holy Spirit, illuminate your word. May we understand the mystery and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ better as a result of this morning. And may it make a difference in our lives. As we walk out of here this morning, I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm not going to go through the entire text of Exodus 12. One of the reasons, because we just did a story, actually a sermon series on the book of Exodus. I actually had the privilege of speaking on Exodus 12, the Passover, on March 16th, about six months ago. That message is still on the website if you want to listen to it. But I'm not going to, for that reason, develop it fully this morning. Actually, my sights are set a little larger than just this one chapter this morning. My aim really is broader than just explaining the Passover, really as significant as this event is. My goal is really that of the entire series that we are starting this morning. It's this, that we would learn to glory in, that we would learn to articulate, and that we would learn to apply, apply the gospel to our lives. That is, that we would remember what Christ has done. Perhaps nowhere in the Old Testament is that command to remember made more clear than the narrative of the Passover as told in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Christ. So friends, my point is simply this. Remember Christ, the Passover lamb. Point one, how do we remember? To remember is to recount what God has done for us in Christ. With that in mind, let us turn now to Exodus chapter 12. And I'll be going through a variety of scriptures, starting with verse 1 of chapter 12 of Exodus, the well-known Passover narrative. Great. I'm going to read, keep your Bibles open to Exodus as we will be turning back to it, to the course of the preaching today. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus 12, verse 1. Start at verse 1. 
They've already gone through nine plagues. Nine plagues have been brought in the land of Egypt. We're about to hear the tenth and final plague. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Pick up in verse 6. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land land of Egypt. Carrying on to verse 29, we see this fulfilled. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, and you have said, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Church, what has occurred in this narrative is nothing less than remarkable. After 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God has set his people free. Approximately 2 million, maybe over 2 million people, including women and children, were a part of this mass exodus. They were the ones who were delivered from the clutches of Pharaoh. In doing this, God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Four centuries of bondage. And delivered them from God's wrath and judgment as executed on the Egyptians. God redeemed his people and God fulfilled his promise to his people. If we read in Exodus 6, you don't need to turn there. Let me hear it. Just let you hear it. This was his promise. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. What occurred 
on this night of Passover was the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament. And it was a fulfillment of God's very word and promises. It was as dramatic and bloody as the Allied invasion of Normandy on D-Day that turned the tide of World War II. It was as dramatic and horrific as the Russian army's liberation of the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz in 1945. It was dramatic and as terrifying as those who were trapped in the Twin Towers at 9-11 and who were dramatically rescued by the New York Fire Department from the clutches of the flames and falling debris. Please don't miss the drama, the suspense, and yes, even the suffering on that faithful night in Egypt when God brought his tenth and his final plague to bear. There was not a household, Egyptian or Jewish, where there was not someone or something dead at the end of that night. It was either a firstborn child or a lamb without blemish who was sacrificed in the firstborn's place. The slain lamb on that evening for the Jews was a substitute for the firstborn child who was slain by God himself. Either way, there was blood. And we read in verse 13 in chapter 12 this. The blood shall be a sign for you. And on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The people of God had been spared. The people of God had been freed, passed over because of the blood of the Lamb. I read that and I would say, surely the people would never forget this night. Surely they in future generations would not forget the day in which their first child, first child was undone. The night their nation was born when they were redeemed, taken out of Egypt into the wilderness. You read in Exodus 13, 3. But yet God said to Moses, and Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of, from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Remember, remember. This is a key, rich word in the Old Testament. We find it many times. We find it significantly here used at very choice times for us to remember. God is saying, remember this night. Remember what I have done. Remember your deliverance. Remember your redemption. Remember the day that you and your nation was born by my miraculous hand. Remember the day that I fulfilled my promises. Why would he say that? Why would God emphasize that? Because we are prone to forget. We are forgetful people. But you may say, how could that be on an event like that? Most people here of age can most likely tell me, if you were alive, where you were when JFK was assassinated. Many of us here could tell you where we were when the space shuttle Challenger exploded. English class, second row, from the window, Carlmont High School, 1986. 
Most of us here can tell you where they were when they saw the first impressions or the first images of the Twin Towers exploding or imploding or that of the Pentagon. Pastor Scholars, Gaither Bridge, Maryland, 2001. In one sense, we will never forget, will we, those historic, those pivotal events in our history and in our lives. But in another sense, we very well can forget them, can't we? We can. How can we forget them? Not that we forget the facts. I think those events, if you were alive in that time, I think you'll always remember what occurred in some level of detail. I'm not talking about remembering simply in a mental faculty. No more than that. We cease to remember when those events cease to have bearing on our lives today. We have forgotten the Space Shuttle Challenger when NASA forgets it in its building program. When it's no longer concerned about building proper O-rings, okay? When the, what was learned in the building of that space shuttle no longer has bearing on our space program from the future. We then have forgotten that event. When 9-11 and terrorist attacks no longer have any bearing on our foreign policy or our CIA and how we communicate, it has ceased to have any effect on us. We have forgotten. We have ceased to remember. You see, when we forget, we forget when the past no longer has any bearing on the future. We forget when the past no longer has any bearing on the future. How can this happen? Well, quite easily. For one thing, it's called generational forgetfulness. My children weren't alive when JFK was assassinated, nor when the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up. They were too young to remember 9-11. My children weren't born with knowledge of 1776 in the independence of our nation. They weren't born with the knowledge of 1860 or the Emancipation Proclamation Act that freed the slaves. They weren't even born, most of them, during 9-11. In the same way, our children were not born with the gospel in their hearts. They were not born with a theology of the atonement on their minds. We must put it there, for we cannot forget. We forget when the past no longer has any bearing on the future, which includes our very own children. Folks, how are we doing in that area? For those of you who have children, are you reading books, primarily the Bible, but other supplements to help you and your children explore and know the gospel? Are you singing songs in your home during the week about the gospel? Are you using opportunities, holidays, events, even tragedies to share the gospel, to keep the gospel in the forefront of your mind and that of your children as well? You see, God didn't say, hey, Moses, uh, don't forget to tell the people don't forget. Just let, let them know. Just remind them. No, no, no. God instituted a series of memorials. Literally, the word there is remembrances to ingrain this decisive, salvific act in the minds of his people and future generations into their conscience of every Israelite who had been passed over to ensure that this would be passed on as well to their children. Here's how God's people were to remember. Recall they didn't all have pocket Bibles or books, okay? They didn't have pocket PCs, remember this. It was passed on through word, through demonstration, through these memorials, all right? 
First of all, what does God do to ingrain this in their mind? He changes their calendar, their very calendar. We read in verse 1, chapter 12, that the month in which the Passover took place was to be the first month of the new year, the month of Abib, which means, in Hebrew, sprouting new life. The month of new life. That is, the time of their deliverance as a people was to be their birthday. The time of their deliverance was to be their new year as a nation. Just as we marked the birthday of our child by the dates they were delivered. God changed the calendar. I can just see them walking in the Sinai Peninsula. Hey, hi, hi, May. What's, uh, what's the date today? Uh, fourth day of new life. Of new life. A beep. Wow, man, that doesn't, doesn't feel like new life. Remember Egypt? Yeah, Egypt. It is new. Things have changed, haven't they? It is the day of new life. You get it? God wants to ingrain this event and brand it on their minds, even how they took view of their time and their calendar. Secondly, God then institutes three statutes or remembrances. Number one, the Passover meal or the service. This very meal we just spoke about in the introduction is what Christ was celebrating with his disciples at the Last Supper. It's a very meal that Christ had fulfilled. What they do? Took a one-year lamb without defect, was chosen and slaughtered on the 14th day that first month, roasted and consumed that very night. We read in verse 14, Exodus 12. This day shall be for you a memorial day or a remembrance day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Verse 24, the same chapter. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. But he didn't stop there. There's also another statute or memorial. It's called the consecration of the firstborn. We read that in Exodus 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. We read in this 13th chapter of Exodus that the firstborn is to be consecrated to the Lord. What this meant was that the firstborn male animals of their household were to be sacrificed unto the Lord. But of course, they didn't sacrifice their firstborn child. No, he was bought back as one who belongs to God. And that firstborn thus was redeemed. You see, in the Passover, God killed the firstborn of creation, his son Jesus, in the place of his firstborn, the church you and me, his children. And God wants us to remember this from time to forth. Lastly, there was one more feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We read in chapter 13, verse 3, that they were here in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. It says in verse 7 of this chapter, Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, 
It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial, a remembrance between your eyes, between your eyes and your head, that you would get it, all right? And that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute at its appointed time from year to year. From year to year, forevermore. It's as if God is saying to his people, I'm going to brand my great act of salvation into your collective, into the national conscience of my people and future generations. I love the quote there in your notes from Matyar. It says this, The commemoration of this event, a Passover, was to be much more than a simple aid to memory. It would come to dominate and control memory and make the new beginning unforgettable. So here's my question. Has God's act of deliverance and redemption come to control your memory? To interpret your present and the past? Has God's great act of deliverance come to shape your future and how you think about it? I'm not talking about the Passover. I'm talking about what it all pointed to you. Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, who was slaughtered in your place as a substitute at the cross of Calvary, the firstborn of all creation, who was slaughtered for you, his firstborn. The Passover, as we mentioned, was a prophetic gospel event. See, the story of deliverance and the birth of Israel, it wasn't just their story. It's our story for us today as those who have been delivered through our Savior. It's our identity as those who have been redeemed through Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. As those who placed their trust in Christ Jesus, we have been delivered from the bondage of sin. We've been purchased and redeemed by the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. And we've been adopted into his family. We need to have this truth, don't we? Emblazoned between our eyes. Because our salvation is indeed a new beginning. A decisive new beginning. We have a new calendar. We have a new master. We are the Passover people here today. Let me ask a question again now. Has God's act of deliverance and redemption we just talked about come to control your memory, interpret your past, and shape the future? In other words, to remember rightly, to remember is to rightly interpret, to rightly interpret the events of Passover and to give it the attention and the primacy that it deserves. When we forget the past, when we forget the past no longer has any meaningful bearing on the future, nor on our conscience. Condemnation and unbelief, rather than liberation or freedom, the redemption can be our lot. I love the words here from John Enzor. Speak on this topic. It says, When my conscience condemns and blocks the way to God, I must be ready to stand on the truth of the gospel and contend for my faith. By faith, I look to the heavens and shout, Oh, happy day. Conscience shouts back, I object. I reply, on what basis? Conscience says, you did such and such. How can you possibly think God does not see it? I admit, I will not deny the facts. And God knows the tears, the tears that have been shed over it. But I ask, was it or was it not 
a sin for which Christ died. Conscience demurs. Well, yes. My faith takes the offensive. If yes, was it or was it not paid in full? Conscience pauses. I withdraw the objection. Faith presses further. And should you not also rejoice with me? I love this. Conscience is awestruck by the all-sufficiency of the cross. And faith says, then let us draw near to God and say, thank you, Father, for paying for that awful sin my conscience has just brought to mind. I rejoice all the more deeply in your loving kindness. Do you get it? We must not forget our deliverance. We must not forget the Passover lamb. We must not forget the gospel. Are we carrying that gospel truth into the battle each day? The battle against our very own conscience, right? The battle with the flesh and our sinful nature. That battle with the enemy of your soul and my soul. That battle that's in the workplace, in the world, which is vying for your time. That world which is vying for your attention and your affections and your pride. That battle right at home, even with your very own children or perhaps your extended family. It's interesting when we read that upon entering Canaan, the promised land, that Joshua and the Israelites celebrated Passover. They stopped, camped, and remembered what God had done in saving them from the Egyptians and bringing them into his promised land. Right before they go into the battle of Jericho, the walled city of Jericho, they take Passover. Some of you maybe have experienced God's favor But right now, you're facing a walled, fortified city named Jericho in your life. It's an obstacle, and it can seem insurmountable. It may be finances, may be your job, it may be your house, it may be your health. What are you doing right now to rehearse the gospel? And does this truth of God's mighty act of deliverance, the fact that he passed over and redeemed you, have any bearing on how you now look at that walled city? Let me suggest it should and it must. Are you rehearsing and celebrating God's grace in your life, recounting the testimony of what God has done on the cross and what he has done for you personally, that he has delivered you, that he will now provide for you in the future all your needs for life and godliness? that you now belong to him, that you are his, and that you are not shaken. Is that how you go into battle? We also read in Ezra, the Jews return to the promised land after a long exile. They're finally back on their native soil, and they rebuild the temple, at least a shell of the old temple. And we're told once they do that, they then celebrated Passover. Some of you right now, you feel like you've been in exile. You are right now, perhaps, attempting to rebuild broken relationships, attempting to rebuild your own family. Do you know the gospel? Are you rehearsing the gospel right now, God's mighty hand of deliverance and grace in your life? 
propel you forward. That you can look at your children. You can look even at your spouse and say, I sorry, I regret, and I grieve the sin that I've committed against my God and against you. But my trust and hope is that God, too, has passed over my sin. That this day could be a new day in our relationship. That God is rewriting the calendar now. That the past no longer needs to define us or define the future. That we have been delivered from our sin and anxiety, from the bitterness that has racked and divided our family or relationship. That because I have been forgiven and passed over, I too now can forgive you and we can start afresh. Now, no longer slaves to our sin, but as slaves to the one who saved us. Are you understanding what's happening here? We're bringing the gospel to bear. We're remembering the gospel in our lives and in times of pain. That we can look to the future with hope. Is that how you counsel others? We've been in arm with the gospel, this glorious truth. We must use it. Friends, to move forward in life, we must first look back. Look back at the cross, the Passover lamb. That is the way to experience all that God has for you now and for the future. His very promises. It's the first look back and see what God has already done for you and bring you to this point in time. Faith must always look up. Faith must always look back before faith looks forward, okay? Look up to God. Look back at what he's done. Now, look to the future with hope and confidence and in worship. Love this quote from Piper. Got it from the book that we are studying in our singles, Ministry, Battling Unbelief. And he says this, Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is, without past grace, Past grace, our past deliverance, our salvation. Without that, we could expect no future grace. God's future grace towards us was purchased and guaranteed by his past grace toward us in the death of Jesus and his resurrection. This. It's Romans 8, verse 32. Let me read. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. Past grace, got it? Past grace? How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Future grace. Friends, this is not a rhetorical question. If God sent his very own son, the Passover lamb, to die for us, he did not spare him. Will he not give us all things we need for life and godliness? Will he not provide for us financially in uncertain times? Will he not give us the grace to remain pure? Will he not give us a faith for the future, for college, for a job, for a spouse? Yes, he will. But to look forward to the future, we must look back first to his past grace and what he has done. See, some of you this morning, you're just looking ahead to the future. You're saying, I don't know what the future holds. I, I can't see God. Where are you? Well, look back. Turn around. He's right there. He's always been there and he will be there for the future. Look back. Now look forward. What do you see? I see God working and orchestrating your life for his glory, providing for his glory because you are now his child and you belong to him. You see the glory? That is the glory of the gospel. 
We don't need a new truth. We don't need new revelations to carry us into tomorrow. What we need is the one truth. What we need is to guard this one truth. We need to remember Christ, the Passover lamb. How? By rehearsing, by recounting, by rejoicing in the gospel. But we don't stop there. You see, to remember is more than just simply recount. It's all that. But this word in Hebrew, it's broader than that. It's not just referring to mental activity. Remembering is referring to action. In other words, the Hebrew word to remember includes both remembering and the actions that result from remembering. Church, the gospel isn't just a doctrine to espouse. We mention it a lot here at Palm Vista. We can just let it go over, just over our heads, or just we get a glazed look. Yeah, I know the gospel. Praise God. Does it have bearing on us today? We just don't espouse it. It's a truth to live by. The gospel is an actionable gospel. That leads us to point two. To remember is to act upon what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We must learn to live in the good of the gospel daily, of what Christ has done for us. I had a precious moment this week with my children. We've been reading together the book entitled The Cross in Our Life. And we got near the end. I just asked him, son, do you have any questions? And he said, so it's not good enough just to read the Bible, Dad, right? And like to know the gospel? I must live it, right? I said, yes, son. He said, I don't think I'm doing that, Dad. Can we pray? The refreshing, disarming honesty of a child. Can you be the honest this morning? Can I be honest with you? If you're not living the good news of the gospel, you don't get the gospel. I don't care if you've heard it a thousand times and listened to every message of Paul Vista and every message on site from Sovereign Grace. It doesn't matter how many books you have read. If you're not living it, you don't get it. It's really that simple in God's economy. And it's that sobering as well. But my friends, there is hope. I'm not saying that change takes place immediately. When the gospel is implanted, there is a transformation that takes place. Progress will be discernible. It may change in its rapidity over time, but there will be growth. The best example I can offer is that of Scripture. The Apostle Paul himself. He is speaking to the church in Corinth. What a well church. You see, the church of Corinth, oh, they thought they got the gospel. In fact, they thought they had arrived. They said they were kings and all that. Spiritual gifts were flowing. Presumably, converts were being made. But yet Paul comes to them in his first letter to the Corinth church and says, essentially, you don't get it. You don't get it. There's a disconnect between what they professed and how they lived. There was sin, there was gross sexual immorality and impurity in their church and no one was dealing with it. Listen to Paul's gospel-laced admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. 
Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, that's a little yeast, leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Why? For Christ, our Passover land has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what's this, all this Passover talk? You got me all confused here. What's it to do with leaven and bread and Passover and Corinthian church? He's referring back to what the Jews would have been very familiar with, the Passover itself. He's using Passover deliverance language that they would be accustomed to. He's saying cleanse out the old leaven, that which is not pure and holy, that which is evil and malice. Get rid of it in your midst. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has passed over you, he has forgiven you, and he has cleansed you. You have been passed over. You have now been set free from the bondage of sin. So live like it. Live like you are a new creation in Christ. A new creation in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He's looking back. And now he's looking in the eyes and saying, this is who you are if you're in Christ. Act like it. Live out. Remember the gospel. So we pursue holiness, not because we're not accepted by God, but because we've been redeemed and are accepted by God. In Christ, we have the decisive victory. Friends, remember the Passover. Remember the Passover lamb. Oh, and this verse says later on, verse 8, and celebrate. How do we celebrate? A life of purity, acting in accordance with our new nature, who we really are in Christ, what the gospel tells us. Celebrate as if it's true, because it is. Let us pray. as we prepare our hearts now to receive communion, the Lord's Supper, prepare our hearts as you've been doing these last few minutes of this service. Father, we don't want to go through the motions. Some of us, we're tired of going through the motions. We want to interact with you right now, our Passover lamb. To rehearse the goodness of the gospel and now take that into the very situations and context in which we live. Lord, help us now for us to remember, help us to understand what has been communicated through your word. That we may not know it as a people of God. That we may not have the confidence now to go forth and live it, we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, this is a sacred time right now. We are not finished. As for your undivided attention. We're going to celebrate the gospel of remembering the Passover lamb. We're going to do that by taking communion. The Lord's Supper, as it's often called. This is Christ's ordained means to remember the gospel. As Christians, we are new covenant 
believers. We don't have to eat matzo balls for Passover, okay? Or celebrate our firstborn pet or lamb, okay, this morning. Thank God. All these rituals have been fulfilled in Christ. But the principle to remember forever remains on us. And this is one means of grace that God has given us in a church, as a corporate church, as a family, to remember together the Passover lamb. I pray that you'd feel the weight of Christ's words at the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Behind that, those words stood 1,400 years of history, of recounting, and of awaiting for God's ultimate deliverance found in Christ. We now stand 2,000 years later in the stead of many have gone before us remembering this Passover lamb as we look to the final exodus from this earth to heaven and Christ's return. So we do this in recognition and remembrance this morning of what Christ has done for us at Passover. This is the sacred, sacred sacrament of the church. It's a means of grace. But I need to say these words for which we're warned from Scripture. If you have not placed your act of trust in Christ as your Savior, Scripture warns you to not partake of this communion. Why? Because your sins have not been passed over. My plea with you this morning is that you would repent and turn, of your, turn from your sins. You would come to Christ, your only Savior, your only hope, your Passover lamb, and you would receive his forgiveness at the cross that you would one day be able to partake with us as a family remembering this day.